Hello and welcome back to Romance Aloud, celebrating 60 years of the Romantic Novelists Association in the UK. I'm Ian Scullicorn and in this special podcast series, I'm talking to RNA members about their own books and the authors from the Association's 60-year history whose work means the most to them. This time, I'm delighted to bring you my interview with number one best-selling author Sue Moorcroft. And when I spoke to Sue, I started by asking her how she got into writing romantic fiction. Well... All I've ever wanted to write, I suppose, is the answer. I uh, I haven't really had a yen to write anything else. It's mainly what I read as well, whether it's romantic fiction or historical or whatever. There's usually a romance in there. Um, apart from my beloved F1, I read a lot of autobiography and stuff to do with F1. I would hate to have to write things I don't like. To spend six months to a year with a book and not enjoy writing it would be awful, I think. Well, you've also written lots of short stories for women's magazines. Can you tell us how that came about? Well, it's how I created my audience and got a track record. Yeah, um, I did a course and I wrote two novels, which I had the temerity to send out, not knowing any better. And they really came back at the speed of light. And they're probably in a landfill somewhere, which is the best place for them. And so I did a distance learning course. Uh, which we called a correspondence course at the time. And about the same time, somebody got me a writing guide by the late Nancy Smith. And it said that if you could sell perhaps 20 short stories to national newsstand magazines, then the publisher of novels would look at you more favorably. And so I set out to do that. And loosely speaking, it worked. But it was 87 short stories before I sold a book. Wow, that's quite something. And you've written magazine serials as well, haven't you? That's right. Yeah, I'd sold one of the serials as well. I still do serials, um, but they, the magazines don't print such long ones now. So it's quite nice. I've just been commissioned by My Weekly to do one in the autumn. I think it's going to go out on the 14th and the 21st of November, which will coincide with my winter book, A Christmas Wish. That's just two parts, uh, maybe three parts, uh, you know, another time. But at one time I used to do six or seven. They were like half a book. Do you keep up with developments in the short story market and how, if at all, has it changed since you were writing for it? It's shrunk to a shadow of its former self. It really has. See, I sold my first short story in 1996. It was April the 1st, so I remember it very well. Uh, I was trying to work out if it could be a trick. And that was to the people's friend. I sold my first short story to them and my hundredth short story to them. And I stopped counting short stories at about 150. And that was years ago. But yeah, at that time we had Me and Best and Bella, Woman's Own, Woman's, Woman's Realm, Woman and Home. They all had short stories in them and, and loads more I can't just bring to mind at the moment. And they either don't do fiction now or they don't exist. Why do you think the market's shrunk so much? From my perspective, what it looked like was people fell in love with reality stories. And it's the same on TV, isn't it, really? It seems to be that a lot of people would rather read about somebody's spouse beating them up and leaving them to live in a park than a fictional story with a message and proper structure and everything. So that's unfortunately, it's, it just seemed to grow and grow. Well, let's turn to your novels. Your middle dip books, which you've been writing for quite a few years now, have the same setting, but they're standalone stories. What is it that attracts you to returning to a familiar setting? It's a mixture of things, really. Um, it's quite real in my mind. And I find this not just about Middle Dip, 
I wrote a book set in Malta called The Wedding Proposal, which I think came out in 2014. And I've just, the new book is set in Malta and I have reused a youth centre. And I found, although I had to refresh my mind on some of the smaller characters, the actual building had remained in my imagination complete. I knew the layout, I knew what the tiles looked like on the hall floor and things like that. And so I think Middle Dip is very real to me. And a couple of things happened. The first Middle Dip book starting over, I don't think I could bear to leave it. I got so into it, I couldn't really bear to leave it. And so the next book I wrote, I set in the same place, which is something I quite like to read linked books as well. So I suppose, again, it's personal taste coming into it. And I had the hero of starting over, Ratty, make a bit of a cameo appearance as Cleo's landlord in All That Malarkey. So it was a a way of letting readers see that he was okay, he was happy, and it was nice for me to sort of bump elbows with him again. And he's he's appeared in one or two books. And I had thought that Middle Dip would um, vanish off my radar over time, but readers kept asking for it. It's a bit like Midsummer Murders Without the Murders, that people just like the setting. They like the familiarity. They like the continuity. Somebody said to me a couple of days ago, they like that the lady at the shop has changed now, and it's changed for good reason. And the man at the pub has changed now, and it's changed for good reason. They follow these people's, even the minor characters, they follow their lives. So I suppose I feel much the same, that this place is real. These people are friends, and and I like to be there. My new publisher, when I wrote The Christmas Promise, it was originally set all in London. And they said, you know, a lot of our readers like villages. This little bit with this Christmas do, could it be in a village instead of in the home counties and, you know, ancestral type home? And I said, yeah. And I suddenly thought, well, I've got a village. It's in my head already. And so I contacted my then editor, Helen, and said, can I use this one? Is it okay? I used it with my last publisher and said, no, that's fine. It's got a readership. Go for it. And now they actually ask for that village. My publishers say, is any of the book going to be set in Middle Dip? Because readers like it so much. In that sense, do you think it's a bit like the TV soaps, where it's the setting that's the star and the people come and go? Well, that's true. I haven't watched soap for a while, I have to say. I don't watch that much telly apart from Formula One. But when I did used to watch something like Coronation Street, some characters wouldn't be in it for ages. And they were perhaps off doing pantomime or something, the actors But their stories could fade into the background because there's so many other people. And mine are are always standalone. They are only linked. But you do get to see people like Carola, who just began as the village sort of busybody and head of the village hall committee. And she still is those things, but she came out more and more and got quite a big part in one book. And you saw her marriage sort of disintegrate. And then in the next book, you saw her meet someone else and it not go well. And she did internet dating because I felt she needed updating a little bit. And readers will write into me and say, well, we'd like Gabe and Carola to get together because they're both, you know, they've been in so many books and and they don't have anybody. I say, yeah, but Gabe is old enough to be her dad. (laughs) And so we have these whole conversations about these people who exist in my head. (laughs) That's great. Now, you hit the coveted number one spot on Amazon in the UK with your novel, A Christmas Promise. How did that feel? euphoric. It's one of those things like winning the lottery, you think it will never happen to you, even though you buy your ticket. I had been hovering in position two or three for about a week. And there was an Amazon published book was at number one, also Christmas. And I thought, well, there's no way I'll get it. And it was pretty heady stuff. 
just being at two or three. It was, it was like it was happening to somebody else. And then I turned my computer on this Sunday morning, about six days before Christmas, and saw that this Christmas book, I was ahead of it, but I was still at number two. And somebody had found a load of Georgette Heyer short stories and published them as an anthology, and that was at number one. And I said to my husband, well, damn me, Georgette Hayes come back from the grave to keep me off the number one spot. And then I had this whole conversation with someone on Facebook. She said, have you seen your chart position? And I was saying, yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? You know, and then I went on to Twitter and somebody was saying, you're number one, you're number one, you're number one. And I couldn't believe it. And I had to click and look myself. And I was in tears and I was laughing and I didn't know what to do. And... um I sent a text to my agent. I won't give you every word I used in it, but to the effect that I was number one. And um, loads and loads of people came on Twitter and were talking to me and everything. And after about half an hour, I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go downstairs and tell my husband. <laughs> so, so, And that is when I burst into tears. I tried to tell him and I, I cried. And I went back to this friend on Facebook then and said, I'm number one now. And she said, what do you think I was trying to tell you? So I thought you were telling me I was number two. <laughs> so um, it, was, oh, it was amazing. There's a really unbelievable story attached that about a year before, I'd been at a local town's um, writers group Christmas do and talked to Louise Jensen. Her first book had just been bought by Bookature. I was just moving to Avon HarperCollins. And we were both saying, oh, well, in a year's time, our books will be out and we'll see then, you know, what it's like. And I was number one and she was number two on Amazon. And then I said to her, well, please, can you not overtake me until Boxing Day? And she said, no, it's all right. I'll get in the queue. But she didn't keep her word. She did overtake me. I think it was Christmas Eve. But, you know, if you wrote that in a book, but we'd had that conversation, we'd never met until that night. We live seven or eight miles apart. We'd never met. We met by happenstance. And then almost exactly a year later, we were number one and two on Amazon. You, my editor would say, no, sorry, that just doesn't happen. You're now writing two books a year, a summer one and a Christmas one. So I presume you're writing your Christmas one in the spring and your summer one in the depths of the winter. Does it ever get confusing? Um, not really, because I've always done it for magazines. Uh, the the lead-ins are a bit different now with... Um, better technology. But when I was writing a lot for magazines, I'd be writing Christmas stories in June and summer stories in December, unless I was writing for Australia and then it worked out beautifully. But writing a book obviously isn't something that happens as quickly as writing a short story. So I find it's quite a rolling process. So at the moment, I'm promoting Somewhere on a Sunny Island and I am editing A Christmas Wish, which comes out in November 2020. I got that in at the end of March. So I did write that mainly over the winter, the first draft. And now I'm editing it in summer. And I'm planning my next summer book as well. So I would say that I write some of every book in the summer. And well, really, I write some of every book in every season, almost. You've got your own street team. Can you explain to us what a street team is and what they do? Well, I, that was a complete shock to me that I would have a street team, a reader called Louise said, why don't you have a street team? And I said, well, like you, I didn't completely know what one is. Also, I thought only big American authors had a street team. She said, no, anyone can have a street team. I'll help you. And so we both went on to, or each went on to Facebook 
And uh, she said it from her perspective. And I said, from my perspective, if I were to start a street team, would anybody be interested in joining? And the threshold we set was that if we got 10 people who said yes, I'd set it up. And we got considerably more, 30 or something. So what it is essentially is a fan club, which is lovely, just lovely that people want to support me like that. So it has its own Facebook group. People join via my website. If they go on to sumorcroft.com, then there's a, a thing at the bottom of every page, an icon saying join my street team. And you click on that and it gives you a form to fill in. Then I can join you up to the Facebook group. And you go on that group as much or as little as you want to, but I go on it quite a lot. So the the, t- the street team's always first with the news. Like when I sign a contract, I say, keep this under your hat because it hasn't been announced yet, but I've just sold a book to Holland or whatever, the Netherlands. And they also help me a great deal. Quite a few people are very helpful and will have me on their blog. They become part of my blog tour. They share all my stuff. They um, write reviews on NetGalley and Amazon and, and Goodreads and generally just, you know, word of mouth spread the news. And so it's quite humbling that people like my work enough that they would do this for me. And as a reader, whose street team would you have liked to be on? Well, depending on the era, obviously. I do remember writing to um, Monica Dickens, I think it was and saying how much I'd enjoyed a book just because it really sort of hit me in the heart and got a a letter back from her publisher saying she would be delighted when she read it. And I tried it once more with one other author I can't remember. And um, then I stopped after that because you get you got the same sort of form letter. um, And now that people can just talk to me and come on to Twitter and say, oh, I enjoyed that book or what happened to so-and-so. I find that such a privilege. And it's those early experiences with other authors and having that distance that I think I always keep in my mind. But to answer your question, today's authors, um, I am, I do, you know, support other authors. Today's authors, definitely Jules Wake, who is also Julie Kaplan, uh, Rhoda Baxter, Catherine Freeman, and then some of the romantic suspense authors like Linda Howard, Suzanne Brockman, and from the past, Neville Shute and Georgette Heyer. Okay, now can you tell us which author you've chosen to talk about for RNA 60 and why have you chosen her? Well, I've chosen Christina Courtney, who writes dual timeline or time slip books, or I believe her next one is going to be time travel. And I'm not normally, I'm not a sci-fi person or I'm, I'm not normally into things like that. But um, I know her well personally, which started me reading her books. Um, she used to be chair of the RNA and I was vice chair. And um, I started reading her books and they just hooked me. She got such a feel and a sense for the historical part. The only problem is I kind of fall in love with her historical hero, And then, of course, by the time you get to the contemporary hero, he is no more (laughs) the the historical one. And so we've had one or two conversations about it. But her most recent book, I think, is a real triumph, Echoes of the Runes. It's come out with headline and um, it's just a a wonderful book. And I, I have many personal connections with her. And the one with that book really is it's set in Sweden and she is British Swedish and 
my next book, A Christmas Wish, is partly set in Sweden. And that's because she offered to take me and stay with her mum in southern Sweden. And we went to Stockholm for three days as well. And uh, we had a great time. And she has such a so much history at her fingertips that it was like having a personal tour guide and professional historian all rolled into one. And it really comes through in her books, this grasp she has on the past. And when I was vice chair of the Romantic Novelist Association, I went through a very tough time personally. And I uh, decided that I had to shuck off some jobs. And I'm afraid being vice chair of the RNA was one of them. It was very, very time consuming. And I was finding it stressful in those circumstances. And so I just emailed her one day and said, I'm sorry, I can't do it anymore. And she was absolutely fantastic. And she never reproached me, which she could very well have done. And she has said since, when I've said that to her, well, I'd rather have a happy friend than an unhappy vice chair, um, which I thought was a really commendable attitude. So you actually met through your mutual connection with the RNA? Yes. Well, in fact, when we first met at the RNA, we both just had a few short stories to our name. Uh, we were on the NWS and um, we met at a conference, which was somewhere in the West Country, and we just hit it off straight away. So we've grown together to a large extent. And she has written quite a few Regency novellas as well, and I enjoy those as well. But her full-length stuff, I just don't know anybody else who writes things like a, a female ninja and stuff like that, <laughs> who turns up in Plymouth and it's just um, very, very interesting, I find it. And uh, she's a good storyteller and, yeah, just gets me. Well, I know Christina is interested in genealogy and archaeology. Do you think that passion comes across in her writing? Yeah, particularly Echoes of the Runes, the heroine is an archaeologist. You just feel when you're reading it that it's authoritative. You don't feel like somebody's researched it, if you know what I mean. It just comes from within her. That is my favourite so far. I did also enjoy the, the, the one with the samurai. It wasn't a ninja, it was a samurai, um, female samurai. That is um, a great book as well. But, you know, so many of them are. I've enjoyed them all, really. Talking about Echoes of the Runes, did you know anything about Vikings before you read it? And what have you learned from reading Christina's writing? No, um, or very, only the little bits that Christina had told me now and then. I learned a lot more, a lot more. But I suppose I had been primed because when I was in Stockholm with her, we did go to one or two, you know, she just wants to go in this shop of the Viking Museum to buy this and stuff. And so, uh, and she took me into the gold room and some of the gold there is uh, from Viking times. And um, that's made it into my book as well. Not the Viking aspect, the gold aspect, because it's an astonishing place. Um, I have some fantastic writing friends because another one, Rosemary Kind, last year she lives between, in normal times, between the UK and Switzerland. And she said to me, if you want to set a book in Switzerland, you can come and stay. So she drove me across Europe and we, we stayed um, there for 10 days and, and I did all my research and everything. And that was for Let It Snow, last winter's book. And then uh, Christina just said, well, do you want to do it again with Sweden? We talked about the book. She knew what lines I was thinking along. And so she'd set up all these people and set up the uh, research meetings for me. 
oh, you want to speak to this person about ice skating, or you want to speak to this person about um, a Brit coming to live in Sweden, and you want to speak to this person about Santa Lucia Day and about the education system. She was just fantastic, and um, it was amazing. It was fantastic, and her mum was lovely and was a wonderful host. You and Christina are writing in very different genres. Do you find any similarities in your work? And is there anything she's done as a writer that you think could influence your writing? Um, They are very different, really. By taking me to the gold room, that definitely did influence a couple of scenes in um, A Christmas Wish. And yeah, no, I would say it was more, we talk plots out sometimes and she's very clear-sighted. She's probably more help to me than I am to her in that way. And, you know, now we're in lockdown. We Zoom on a Sunday night with another author, Maggie Sullivan, who I believe you know. And um, it's great to be able to chat to other writers. And I think that probably other writers influence me more like that than in their writing. Both you and Christina have lived in various countries. You've lived in Malta. She's lived in Tokyo, for example. Is that something in common that you've talked about? Yes, particularly as my brother lived in Tokyo. So I know some of the places she talks about when she talks about Tokyo. Yeah, I think we both have a pretty, you know, we have quite broad horizons. She likes to be in another country more than actually traveling there. She doesn't enjoy the actual traveling, whereas I enjoy the whole thing. But we are both very, like if we go to London Book Fair together, we're talking to everybody. Um, She speaks several languages and I'm rubbish. But we do, we'll talk to anybody kind of thing. And we're always very interested in people from different countries. And we we have that in common, definitely. And when we did uh, workshops together in America, we went to RT Book Lovers Convention. We sort of used that as the hook that she'd lived so-and-so, 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 and and I'd lived so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. And and she spoke these many languages and I spoke just mine. And that's it. And um, yeah, it is a, a commonality. As you mentioned earlier, Christina is a former chair of the RNA. Is she still actively involved with the association? I believe she is in a small way now. She was going to put on an event that was a pre-conference event this year, uh, an historical one with a library. But sadly, the conference has been cancelled. So I'm afraid that event has. And she was going to be a speaker on Saturday, I think, in uh, the London chapter as well. But ditto, postponed for now. Well, to finish, can you tell us how you got involved in the RNA and what being a member means to you? I first became involved because I used to write for a short story agency called Midland Exposure and they had an event. I met a lady there called Rosemary who was on the RNA's New Writers Scheme and she told me about it and I thought, oh, that's the thing for me. I had books in my bottom drawer, you know, and I didn't really know. I didn't have the money to pay hundreds of pounds for an appraisal. And this situation she described just sounded perfect. And then my happenstance, Marina Oliver, who I believe had been a chair of the RNA, and she was certainly on the committee at that time, came to a library in Northamptonshire. So I took some of my friends from my local writing group and we went and listened to her speak. And I asked her about the RNA. And um, she gave me a leaflet and I went home and filled the form in and joined there and then. I would say to anybody who's writing in the right area, particularly if you're not published yet and you would really like access to 
a lot of information and a lot of friendly people who talk to you, it's perfect for you. It really is. Even if you can't get along to events, just to be able to talk to people on the Facebook group or at local chapters, there are a lot of local chapters around the British Isles. I think it's worth it for you. You know, I genuinely feel that um, it's had a big bearing on my career. If I can just quickly read the the dedication of my new book, it says, For the Romantic Novelist Association in its diamond anniversary year, I've been a member of this amazing organisation for two of its six decades, during which it has given me a can-do attitude, massive support, industry knowledge, career opportunities, and an army of fantastic friends. Well, you can't say better than that. Sue Moorcroft, as always, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you about your writing and, of course, about your RNA60 choice, Christina Courtney. Thank you very much for inviting me, Ian. And, dear listener, thanks to you too for listening. Join me again soon for another episode of Romance Aloud, celebrating 60 years of the Romantic Novelists Association. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd be really grateful if you could leave us a positive review. To find out more about the Romantic Novelists Association, go to romanticnovelistassociation.org. The show notes for this episode, with more information about Sue and Christina Courtney, can be found at windhamaudio.com forward slash RNA. That's Wyndham, W-Y-N-D-H-A-M, audio.com forward slash RNA. Take care, and I hope you'll join me again next time. Yeah.